Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Ellie Jacobs, and with me as always is Frank Spring, a man who fulfills far more promises than he promised. That's the key to success, is setting expectations reasonably. Uh, promise nothing, achieve, uh, fulfill the promises you haven't made. This is the path to success, so saith the President of the United States, or at least his mouthpieces. So, thank you, Ellie. Uh, as always, we would like to thank our listeners for their commentary. Uh, it's been a fairly active week in, in Back and Forth, actually, which I appreciate. Uh, the positive ones and the various hate missives that you send us, uh, correcting us viciously. Uh, we appreciate those as well, perhaps even more than the positive feedback. That is not true. Uh, and uh, we urge you to subscribe and also rate us on iTunes. Ratings are important. Uh, we Again, we're still angling for that sweet, sweet Casper money. And uh, follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship. And that's ship with a P as in uh, pontiff, pontiff. Today we'll be joined uh, by Michelle Wooker, who will talk to us about her book, The Gray Rhino, which is a, a concept that we have used before several times on this show. Uh, we've talked about various events. Again, her, she will talk about it in greater detail, but we talk about it in the context of a totally foreseeable disaster that uh, no one decided to do anything about, and as a result, punched everyone in the face. Uh, Michelle is the founder and CEO of The Gray Rhino, uh, which is a, a consulting firm that uses the concepts behind her book uh, to help clients properly anticipate and strategize to address upcoming challenges that they might otherwise have missed. Uh, she was previously with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and the World Policy Institute. The Gray Rhino was her third book after Lockout, Why America Keeps Getting Immigration Wrong When Our Prosperity Depends on Getting It Right. Still a very timely book. And, 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 quite, and uh, she wrote quite a good one uh, on the island of Hispaniola. Uh, that would be the Dominican Republic and Haiti uh, on the struggles thereon. Uh, the book, that book is called Why the Cox Fight. Good writer, a very thoughtful person, been in a lot of media, especially around the publication of The Gray Rhino, which I, I think was, it was both important and timely, and we'll be talking to her in just a second. Right. We're looking forward to that. Uh, I do want to make mention that we are coming up on the one-year anniversary of taking ship. This uh, ship of fools has been at sea for just four days short of a year, and yes, uh, so, so somehow much, it gets dumber every day. So much scurvy. So much scurvy. We ran out of lemons and oranges months ago. Uh, so we'll, we'll just talk briefly, I think, Frank, because there, there was a little bit going on this week. But at the same time, since it is Groundhog Day, this is Groundhog Day in Dumbest Timeline America. And uh, as some very smart, astute viewer of Groundhog Day, which everyone knows is a wonderful movie, uh, calculated that uh, Ned uh, Bed. Bill Murray repeated the same day, Phil Connors repeated the same day 12,395 times, which is approximately 34 years. And this week kind of feels like 34 years. I, it's shocking to even think back that just Tuesday night before we were mocking a Kennedy about having too much chapstick on his lips. That was just this past Tuesday. Yeah. This has been this. I mean, in in a year of of long months and weeks, this week has been epically long, uh, and so we're going to treat it with the respect it deserves and barely talk about it at all. Right. Uh, contrary to the way most uh, administrations and White Houses work on the State of the Union, where they roll it out over several days, the president goes out on the road, all of his um, uh, surrogates go out on the road, and it's pretty smart way of keeping the president and his policy and his initiative in the news for several days. Everybody will remember. Um, 
Obama's brilliant win the future or WTF from several years ago that died pretty quickly because no one thought to think the gray rhino of, hey, that's a really stupid acronym. Maybe we shouldn't do that. But uh, this administration, uh, almost immediately after Trump finished his speech, went right back to talking about the uh, what a good friend of mine uh, and former colleague called the failed high school term paper known as the Nunes Memo, uh, which came out about two hours ago now. And it is dumber than anyone could. I, I don't know that anyone could have even anticipated how dumb it is. And yeah, it's, it is a remarkably uh, asinine document from a remarkably asinine man. So, I mean, yeah. you know, in that sense, it all fits together. Yeah, I, I I looked at it the other day. I was thinking, like, maybe Nunes can get taken down. No, he's like in a plus 18. Yeah, and also, I mean, you know, at some level, this kind of this this kind of particular idiocy is the sort of thing that that is that 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 cannot be stopped by human hands. Yeah, <laughs> is there, there's no weapon forged against this kind of dumbassery can prosper. This is we're dealing with a force. It's like. It's like that concept behind Fargo, right, where there's, they're the usual criminals that you would sort of run across. And then out in the world, there are criminals so dark that encountering them is like encountering another species. You also get this in No Country for Old Men, uh, that, encountering these, that encountering these people is just like, it's like running into some sort of cosmic force. It, this is that level of dumbassery. Just, you're just, you're at, we are outclassed by this kind of fucking idiocy at every turn. Yeah, uh, as opposed to, more normative, understandable idiocy, uh, which also happened this this week. Just this week, it happened. Uh, Trey Gowdy, uh, who I believe his name is actual Har- is actually Harold. It's <laughs> um, just Trey over Harold and wore his hair like that. Oh he, my he god! He decided he decided to take his bizarre haircuts. Harold Watson, Trey Gowdy the third. Yeah, Christ. That was just this week that this oh, yeah. just lunatic that created a scandal out of an unfortunate situation where there were a lot of th- factors that led to the to the attack in, in Benghazi and there were mistakes that were made, but there was no conspiracy. Yeah. And, and yet he created a thing that went on for 14 months, cost taxpayers $80 million and produced nothing. Yeah. I mean, that, so the, that's a that's a that's a pretty good stat line. It's not bad at all, actually. Um, he's, he's got a lot to be proud of, and probably more, because what's happening here is this dude is clearly angling for a lifetime judicial appointment. So we can look forward to a lot more of this particular genius. Oh, boy. It's been, it's been, it's been a long one, friends. A long one. It's, it's been a week. Um, there's really nothing to say about the State of the Union, other than the fact that, once again, Donald Trump proved he could read. Uh, but again, not 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 seeing what was actually on his teleprompter, it may all just be pictures. Yeah, it's very possible. I mean, he did prove that he could read, and what he and and, and that he's capable of reading some oh boy, some pretty dark stuff. Wow, I think it was actually I think it was you, Ellie, and I. I think you may have put this up on Twitter, but you got off what I would consider to be the line of the night, which is uh, I doubt Lindbergh could have done it better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that, 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 that I would consider to be the absolute definitive critique of that speech. Well, I will take that as a huge compliment. Uh, the, one of the things that really bothered me about the speech was that he at no point looked right to his right was where the Democrats were sitting. And at no point did he even look at that teleprompter. Maybe it was broken. Maybe he can't see very well out of his right eye. I don't know. But at no point did he look over in that direction. No, no. And, and why should he? 
Why yeah. should I mean? Why, why are we even? I mean, yeah, this it was it was everything that we would have expected of that particular piece of theater. Yeah, and then the uh, the rebuttal um, by Joe Kennedy. It, the speech itself was not bad. Uh, I would say it was actually a very good rebuttal comparative to most. I mean, he didn't look like a lunatic like Bobby Jindal or take a sip of water like. Uh, Marco Rubio or be an old man sitting old man sitting in a diner (laughs) surrounded by people oddly staring into the into the television it wasn't awkwardly staged but take a sip of water is not an assessment of what Marco Rubio did I mean what he did was take a drink of water with a with the desperation we associate from a man who has just come running in from the desert like that was Marco Rubio like oh god I've got to get this down yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was bad. Yeah, this the State of the Union speeches of rebuttals are cursed. Like the best you can do is not fuck up. It's a mugs game. He did fine. Yeah, I, and I don't know what advanced person's idea was to put a car behind a Kennedy, but that's just poor planning. Bad staff work. Bad, bad staff work. Uh, do we have anything else that we want to talk about? I mean, there's we can give an update on Venal Pack, the war on the war on corruption. But I, I mean, once again, it's Paul Ryan. Yeah, yeah, like he's, he's just he's, out there, he's, out there. he's a perennial winner. He's a you know, I mean, yeah, he's a he's a grinder, man. The guy's just out there getting it done. Yeah, he's he's basically like the fullback that no one really wants to pay attention to, but has been playing for seventy five years because he blocks well. Yeah, although I, I really sort of feel like you're you're doing a, a disservice to like the Daryl Johnstons and and yeah, that's true, uh, and, and Lorenzo Neal's of the world. That is that is true. That yeah, that that's true. Uh, They're not evil the th- men. They don't deserve that. <laughs> well, we I, I mean we don't know that. Maybe they are, but but I don't. But there's no evidence to that effect. And I will I for one will not stand for anyone on this podcast imputing the character of retired full NFL fullbacks Lorenzo Neal and Daryl Johnston. I won't have it. <laughs> Say what you will about Johnston as a commentator, but we do not know for certain that he is an evil man. And I'm tired of these allegations. Speaking of venal pack and our other favorite, the bluegrass turtle. Uh, McConnell's only comment thus far on the memo has been, quote, I don't have any suggestions to make to the speaker. I think he's handling the handling this just right, which to me is just viciously savage, which is, you know, what we've come to expect from the bluegrass turtle. He's a surprisingly savage turtle. Yeah. A that's snapping makes, turtle. That's what makes him tricky. I, I, I don't really see that there's any reason to go into the memo. It's, I mean, it's interesting that, the same group of people who early on were supporting unconstitutional ideas that would have increased um, um, invest, uh, oversight and investigations and wiretapping and all that other sort of good stuff. Um, early on in the war on terror, people wanted to cut down on the, on the FISA process, the, what, what needed to happen in order to get permission from the FISA courts to uh, wiretap someone or investigate someone wanted to, they decided it was too cumbersome and they couldn't move fast enough to get it done. They wanted to cut down on the whole process. These self same people are now lambasting uh, what that process is. And for the, for the memo to make sense, you have to swallow. And this is what I've been able to piece together because I can't watch Fox news partially because I don't have cable TV at home, but mostly because there's still blood flowing through my body. Um, but basically what you have to swallow is for this to make sense is a, that Carter page wasn't on being 
monitored and his, his, his phones weren't tapped starting in 2013. You have to completely ignore that. That has to be something that you've never heard, believe, or see. And then past that, you have to believe that a former MI6 agent, um, Steele, who wrote the so-called Steele dossier or authored the papers that turned into the Steele dossier, you have to believe that he knew he was being paid by the DNC and therefore made stuff up in order to take down Donald Trump. You have to swallow that whole cloth, that that is a fact, that that's why he did it. And then you have to swallow that the... uh, um, Attorney General and the FISA court didn't pay attention to any other pieces of evidence that they had gathered uh, into looking into the Trump campaign or into Carter Page, uh, except the Steele dossier. That's it. This document that is, while unverified and filled with salacious material, there has been nothing that has been disproven from it. Not all of it has been proven, but there's been nothing that's been disproven. You have to Take all of that out of the, out of the out of the thing, and just believe that Steele, via Fusion GP, um, via Fusion, knew he was being paid by the Democrats, despite that the entire process of the investigation to Donald Trump, launched by Fusion, was actually started by the Washington Free Beacon. But again, you have to ignore all that. You have to believe that Steele knew he was working for the Democrats, went to the FBI to trigger what would eventually become the investigation into Russia's involvement into the camp, into the into into the election and any role Donald Trump and his campaign may have played therein. It's a lot to take in. And, and my, my fa- and that's a great summary. I don't have anything to add, except that my favorite part of it is that while this is obviously being done to muddy the waters and, and protect the president of the United States, that this is at least nominally being done uh, to defend the sacred honor of Carter Page, which, I mean, uh, you know, on the sort of, I mean, never before have so many expended so much in defense of someone so worthless. Yeah. This is just, this is the greatest mismatch of, you know, of resource and cause since the war of Jenkins ear. Like it's just, it's, it's an astonishing and wonderfully and historic event. And, and to quote Daryl Roval, I feel bad for our country, but this is great content. Yeah. I, I mean, the eventual goal, I would assume of the campaign that Nunes uh, is running for the white house, I imagine is you have to convince people that everyone on earth that is opposed to President Trump is actually biased against him. And they're biased, they're biased against him because they themselves don't want to make America great again. The media, regardless of the outlet, even if it's the Wall Street Journal, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, who also owns Fox News, they're against him. Congress, the Democrats, and all the never Trumpers, they're opposed to Donald Trump. And the intelligence communities, as Donald Trump has said many times, are the deep state and are opposed to him. And that's what their argument is going to be, that therefore any, anything that Robert Mueller, who, as everyone knows, is a former FBI director, the only FBI director other than Hoover to serve two terms, um, nominated by both a Republican and a Democratic president, um, anything that he finds isn't going to be worth anything because it's all based on biased and flawed material that was collected because those people don't want to make America great again and are therefore trying to stop Donald Trump. Yeah. So swallow all that and see how it goes. And the best part is, is that there are a lot of people that buy it. Oh, and this is the final point here. Um, there are a lot of people who buy it. Uh, you know, I mean, th- those people who bought it were going to buy whatever god awful explanation for this thing is would be Trump would be would come out of the White House. Uh, I th- I suspect. I mean, ultimately, this is going. The question here is to what extent does this muddy the waters in any meaningful way? Uh, it it matters only in as much as imp- as impeachment is a political act. 
if this is able to muddy a political narrative, it might affect the outcome of events. My suspicion is that this is just further further background to what they had actually already fairly successfully uh, turned into a fairly noisy affair. Uh, and with that, we're going to actually break and bring in um, Michelle Walker and have a, uh, for a change, have a very intelligent conversation, we hope, on this podcast. Um, yeah, so stick to, stay tuned. This should be a great conversation. And we are back, uh, joined now by Michelle Walker. Uh, as mentioned, Michelle is the founder and CEO of The Gray Rhino, author of the eponymous book. Uh, Michelle, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk. We talk about the gray rhino a little bit, and I'm I worried uh, in in previous episodes when we've discussed it to um, as a as a frame for political events that I, I I may have may have committed a bit of malpractice in not getting it right. So I want to make sure we know what we're talking about before we dive further into it. So can you please tell us about the concept of the gray rhino and the story behind the concept in the book? Sure. So the gray rhino is uh, its really a metaphor. And what I want people to do is imagine a giant, huge rhino, two tons, coming right at them down the road. You're standing in front of it and you've got to make a decision. And it's really a metaphor and a tool to help people focus on the highly obvious, the highly probable things that they have to deal with um, and make the point that most of the time people don't do nearly as well as you might think we would uh, in dealing with something obvious. But I also wanted to signify that unlike the elephant in the room, whose you know, definition is that it just stands there and everybody sits there and nobody says anything, the gray rhino is something that people actually talk about. People know it's there. It's not like the black swan, which is so improbable that you can't even picture it. Uh, I looked at the at the black swan, which is a really great example of a metaphor that helps to focus people's attention on something abstract. And I thought, what if you took all the energy that's going into imagining things that by definition you can't imagine, which is sort of a fool's errand, and focus that energy on things that you actually are aware of and that we're much more likely to get trampled by than we think, wouldn't that be amazing? Uh, so that's where I came up with the, the image. It's just dangerous, it's scary, it's coming at you. And it's, it's really a way of thinking about uh, situations where you've got a choice. It started out with a very geeky sovereign debt story, uh, looking at the Argentine collapse in 2001 and comparing it with uh, Greece 10 years later, how Argentina had an opportunity to restructure the debt and deal with it in a little bit more orderly way and missed the chance and Greece, which I wrote about as it was facing a very similar situation to Argentina, actually sat down with its creditors and they came up with a deal at the very last minute that prevented the collapse of the euro. And I really wanted to know what was the difference. Both countries had a big, scary, gray thing with a horn charging at them. One country dealt with it in time to get to, get, to keep from getting trampled, and the other country didn't. And I felt it was a very important question for any sort of situation, whether it's a 30,000-foot policy issue like climate change or financial crisis, 
whether it's a corporate issue, whether it's a whole industry going through changes or a company dealing with, say, it's hashtag me too problem, or, or it's even relevant, and I've been surprised by this, on the personal level. Uh, at so many of my speeches, people come up to me afterwards and say, I've applied this to my personal life, or I'll get questions saying, how do I apply this to my personal life? So it's really a universal concept, something that you can evoke if you want people to pay attention to something that is there, but they're not paying enough attention to. That's a great summary and, and very appreciative for being so concise and straightforward with it. The, the, the question that kind of struck me early on in the book is you can see the gray rhino coming. Um, it could be far, far off in the distance, but there also could be a situation to kind of continue the metaphor where you're in, I don't know, Borneo or something where there are no rhinos and there's just the possibility of endless things coming at you. And I think where I was kept getting caught up is What's the, where's the difference between a gray rhino and the consequences of a calculated risk? Meaning, you know, if I go out onto the street, there's always the risk I'm going to potentially, I don't know, get mugged or hit by a car or something terrible like that. So where do you differentiate between the, the slim possibility of something or the individual versus the group? Um, when does the gray rhino exist and when is it just something that's so far and so minuscule of a possibility you don't pay attention to it? It's such a great question because it goes down to what is a risk and what is highly probable and what's our relationship with risk and predictions. And there are really two kinds of risks. There's the thing that's, that's a little bit more passive, something that's happening that you're not causing, but you're facing it. But then you can also take a risk, which means you've looked at a situation and you've calculated how likely it is that something's going to happen or not and you make a decision based on that. For example, you are at a financial services company and you decide to sign people up for a whole bunch of fake accounts because you think the odds are pretty good that you're not gonna get caught. And if you've calculated that wrong, you get trampled. Uh, and uh, you know, that's certainly something that's happened in, in real life. Uh, so one of the things that we need to look at is, you know, what are you predicting? And, Particularly in the West, we get hung up on predictions saying, you know, you predicted this was going to happen on March 2nd, 2018, and it didn't happen. So your prediction sucks. And that's not really the point of it, particularly since gray rhinos can help you to change the outcome of something. And everybody's got a different definition of what highly probable is. But I think it's if you see something and you think that there's a reasonably good chance that a problem is going to happen you need to do something about it. And I want us to do a better job of appreciating people who see those things ahead of time and help to get their company out of the way or help to find a way to use the problem to, uh, in, to actually help them. Uh, so it's, um, and it's a very, very interesting question. Um, in the book, I, I write about Byron Wien, the, the uh, vice chair at um, Blackstone, who every year does a list he calls the top surprises. It just came out a few weeks ago. And he uses it as not exactly a set of predictions, but a set of events that he thinks have a 50% or better chance of happening in the coming year, but that based on his uh, interpretation of what the rest of the market thinks, that most people think it's less than a, a third chance. And he does this really as a way, you know, not to see how many of these he can get right, but to stretch his thinking 
and to really call into question uh, conventional wisdom and herd thinking and say, hey, are people really looking at this in a smart way? Is what people are assuming as likely to be true as they think it is or not? And, uh, you know, the truth is that we have a very complicated relationship with predictions and often things that people predict are, are not as obvious, you know, that they're, they're not as likely as they think. And the things that we downplay are most likely more probable than we think. Can we talk a little bit about those cognitive biases? Uh, because that's, that seems to me the, the, the sort of root of this whole thing is the idea that is the it, and it fits into a sort of a broader uh, literature about behavior about behavioral psychology and and sort of group behavior, which suggests that humans are not in fact as rational as we make ourselves out to be. Like it sort of fits. I think would it, I think it'd be fair to say this fits into that kind of tradition, because no one reasonably looking as a group at a gray rhino would do anything other than prepare for its arrival. The the, the arrival of this thing is too catastrophic not to manage, and yet we do all the time. This is the. <laughs> told me on this book actually was that you know i mean history and and recent events as well and I, you know i've certainly been part of this are just replete with people seeing something coming and just deciding now nah, we're just not going to deal with that at all so what is the cognitive bias behind that phenomenon well there are a bunch of them coming together and it's actually very much like like uh, rhinos which uh, when they move as a group zoologically are called a crash uh, which is oh, that's awesome! Isn't that? I, I, when I learned that, I jumped up and did a little happy dance. And you can't make stuff like that up. Um, but the you know the big cognitive bias here is is what they call confirmation bias, which is also known as groupthink. So when you get a bunch of people together who are very similar, and one person says something, then everybody around the room is much more likely to go along with it rather than challenge that person. And so that's one of the reasons why you, you need to really look at your decision-making processes. You know, who's at the table? Who are you consulting? Does everyone feel comfortable raising the possibility that maybe we're not thinking at this, thinking about this the right way? So that sort of, you know, group think cognitive bias, uh, confirmation bias is, is very important. There are a bunch of other biases that come through. And even though to humans, they seem irrational, I guess, to whatever part of our brain is making them happen, they, they do happen in sort of a, a rational way. There's some consistency uh, behind them, which is, of course, where behavioral science comes from. Um, but another one uh, has to do with the, the optimism bias, that we're much more likely to absorb information that uh, fits with our rose-colored glasses view of the world. And if there's something that doesn't fit with what we want to hear, we'll throw it out. Uh, so I think you could see that in the, in the cases of some of the corporate scandals where people assumed, ah, yeah, this, this is just never going to come to light. And it turns out that they, they estimated the, the cost-benefit ratio quite, quite wrong. Uh, so, you know, so that's one thing. There's another thing. There's a, there's a loss aversion. If you have something already, you don't want to give it up. And so sometimes if we've already made a decision and we're going along with it, we don't want to, we don't want to give up the path that we're, uh, that we're going on. Um, and there are many studies that show that people are more likely to take risks to hold on to what they have, uh, rather. And, and then if they're, they're, if they see the possibility of getting something new, they're going to be much more conservative about it. So all of these come together and shape how, how likely we are to deal with something or not. And the black swan, interestingly, I think ties into some of that, that um, 
uh, optimism bias that I think people want to feel like if something bad happens, there's nothing they could have done about it. And so that they can use it really as a cop-out to say, hey, oh, that was a black swan. Those happen all the time. Not my fault. I'm going to wash my hands of it. And uh, I think that's quite dangerous. And I also think not the intention uh, of the black swan, swan concept in the first place. So, Michelle, jumping onto something that you had mentioned um, that I think uh, that I fully agree with, that, that some of this optimism is uniquely American um, in, the way that, in the way that we just approach everything, I think. One of the things that you mentioned uh, early on in the book is um, the idea of short-term versus long-term value. Um, and that's something that some members of Wall Street, um, particularly uh, Larry, Flink at, at, at Larry Fink at Black, uh, BlackRock, has made a big deal out of and in a very... Um, underappreciated interview that Hillary Clinton did with Business Insider. She talked about that. How do you, when you're dealing with corporate clients, how do you get them to start opening up to the idea of long-term value and earnings over the short term when they're getting so much pressure from Wall Street or shareholders or activist shareholders or whoever else it might be to just continue to be, hit their numbers on a day-to-day as opposed to a quarterly or annually or you know every five years? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's, there's such a huge cultural element to this, and there are also systemic elements. And there have been a lot of efforts within the corporate community to try to change this, to, for example, stop doing quarterly reporting. Uh, there was another initiative, which I write about in the book, about um, trying to see if you could issue shares that, that, uh, that basically give a greater return to people who invest for the, for the long term. Um, but it's, it really is a, a cultural change. Uh, if you look at the evidence, uh, there's one study that I believe McKinsey did that showed that, that the vast majority of corporate value actually comes from the long-term investments, but, but really you know, shareholders aren't looking at it that way. Uh, there's some argument that private companies have an advantage in this way. Uh, I've also seen that in different parts of the world, you see very different attitudes. Uh, there's a chapter in the book about long-term thinking, and it talks about how many Asian companies have been around for 100 years or more, and how many companies are making plans way out into the future. And there's a couple of you seen that, that are 300-year plans, which you know, I think is a bit of a um, you know, a way to catch attention, you know, just like the gray rhino itself is, uh, even though obviously you can't see what's happening 300 years from now. Um, and part of that long-term thinking goes to asking yourself what the real purpose of your company is. Where are you adding value? And it's a strategic question, not so much a tactical question that, you know, the product that you're making is not necessarily what you're really selling. What you're selling is, how you're solving a problem for people. And it's, it's an outlook. And so if you can, as a company, stop thinking so much in a tactical way, but much more looking at your purpose, where you are adding the most value, that helps you to think long-term. Um, and I've also found that in Asia, it's much easier to talk about these things than in the United States. And you know, long-term thinking being so central to Dre Rhino wrangling, it's been fascinating to me to see how in China they have just absolutely embraced this concept and just started running with it 
And I think part of the reason is that they're much better at long-term thinking than we are here. Can you talk a little, I, w- I want to dig into that a little bit because this book is huge in China. Um, and we know that, uh, that uh, Xi Jinping is, we, at least we think he's read it. We know he's, he, we know he has it on his bookshelf. Uh, and, and so why has that, why has that taken off? So, I mean, you talk a little bit about the sort of cultural in, interest in longer term planning, but how has that manifested mechanically? Why, why do you think this book is so big there? And, and where else, where has it been big or where has it not been as successful that has surprised you? Sure. Well, you know, it's it's amazing going to China. I, I feel like a rock star for the first time in my life. <laughs> I'm just, you know, so grateful. To, not before uh, time. Not before time, Michelle. <laughs> but you know, it's it's amazing that the the welcome that I've gotten there, and I've I've been really um you know humbled and gratified, and and of course the question you've just asked us, why is it so big in China, is something a lot of people ask, and it's something that I've asked a lot of people in China. And one of my editors said, well, you know, here are these big problems that people see and they're scared and they want to deal with them. And that's part of the answer. But then I look at, look at the United States, say we've got some pretty big problems to deal with too, and we're not as sensitive to this. Um, and uh, if you look back at China, in fact, I think, you know, you and I were talking many years ago at a point where the book was really at the very beginning stages. And I was asking all of my friends for uh, what came to their mind when they thought of a, an, an obvious problem that was coming. It probably was even before the gray rhino itself came up and examples of good situations and bad situations, people who dealt with something obvious and people who didn't. And I think one of the ones that, that you and others came up with was, was Deng Xiaoping looking at a, a very, very uh, tense a socioeconomic situation and making some hard decisions. And you look at the transformation of the Chinese economy since then. And it's, it's very clear that there were some gray rhinos that they dealt with right away. Now those have had unintended consequences like the, the pollution issues. And uh, of course, some of the financial risk issues that they're dealing with right now in China um, but I think that there is uh, there is a way of thinking in Asia that's 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 much more inclined to problem solving than in the West. And I also was fascinated. I was in Korea in uh, October of this year and sat down with a former professor of mine, um, San Jin Han, who is working on risk perceptions and risk risk sensitivities. And uh, he was telling me that actually in Asia. Uh, risk sensitivities are much, much higher than they tend to be in the West. Uh, So in many ways, I think the gray rhino was a way to put into words to create a metaphor for what people in Asia, and particularly in China, were thinking about and and worrying about. And of course, you know, there's there's been all sorts of talk in China uh, or about China and uh, rhino horn, uh, which which is a whole other issue. But I think that the, the rhino culturally has a significance in China that it uh, doesn't necessarily in the West. This also feels like a book that should have been that, that or that should be big in Germany, uh, just because I, I mean I think those those are a, a succession of governments that have 
have seen some gray rhinos coming and have have taken a more deliberate approach. I'm thinking about investment in wind as a way of getting off of Gazprom and so forth. Like, I mean, you know, some some smart decisions that could have very that that could very easily have just been avoided or kicked down the road that they elected to take on. Have you seen? Has, have you seen a differentiation in response in the West, or has it been been mainly sort of the the response of uh, of Pacific Rim that's really impressed you? Well, it's interesting in the U.S. the financial services community and the risk community uh, has really embraced the concept. Um, I've done a lot of uh, talks in Europe as well, uh, where people have been using for for monetary policy, for business uh, continuity, for other risk type issues. Um, And I've I've got a bunch of super fans here in the States, many of whom have applied it very specifically to their personal lives. Um, A couple people have done blogs about, you know, the end of my marriage is a gray rhino. Or uh, you know, breast cancer as as a gray rhino, and that has just amazed me. But at the same time, I get some pushback in the states in in a way that I haven't seen in Asia, where people say, "Hey, well, yeah, we should deal with obvious things, but they're obvious, so we're dealing with them. So this is not counterintuitive." And you know, it makes me tear my hair out because I'm saying, "Hey, this is so counterintuitive. You don't even know it's counterintuitive." And I think that has to do with this sense of American exceptionalism, that we think we know everything, we're happy to go into another country and tell them how to fix problems that in most cases we have at home and we're not fixing at home. Uh, and you know, the United, in the United States, we've been very, very comfortable, uh, you know, obviously with ups and downs for quite some time. And I think that, um, that until the last 10 years or so, when we've, we've seen some really, really deep financial disruptions where we've seen a, a huge uh, populist outcry and some, some real questions about our political system, uh, people don't know what to do with that all of a sudden. And I think a lot of Americans are still in, in, denial, in denial about the obvious problems that we're not dealing with. And that, that I think was really sort of that cultural predilection by industry, at least was born home to me, uh, really in 2016, I was, I was guilty of when you're talking about the cognitive biases, uh, and, and, and a tendency to relabel what gray rhinos as black swans to sort of, you know, get ourselves off the hook. Uh, you know, I was not alone in, uh, in, in writing off the mounting evidence for Brexit and for the election of Donald Trump. Like there was, uh, and it's interesting, especially on the subject of, of Trump's election, you know, a- after you lose an election, every, uh, you know, you know, there's all, there's always a tendency to go back and say, okay, well, what, you know, what could we have done differently? What went wrong here? You know, trying to do the analysis, some of which is a, is a deliberate attempt to be exculpatory and some of which is a genuine expo- exploration. Uh, and, and people will always say, well, you know, I could have seen this coming because of X, Y, or Z, They're sort of trying to rec- reconcile it within their brains, or I couldn't have seen it coming. One of the things that I have found is as going around talking to you know, progressive strategists or operatives over the course of the last year and more is people begin, often those conversations began with the, well, this is a black swan. I mean, you know, who could have seen this coming? And then if you dig a little bit deeper, everyone has what I think is a, is a, is a fairly genuine and authentic story about the time that they, they themselves were filled with doubt during the 2016 election that Trump could possibly win this thing. Uh, Ellie and I, Ellie and I, you know, and, and then they, they either quelled it within themselves or someone talked them out of it. I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, there's a, a text exchange that Ellie had that Ellie and I had with the, another colleague that was involved in which Ellie said, guys like this, I think the polling's wrong and we could lose this thing. And this, you know, our friend and I talked him out of it, talked him off the ledge, uh, despite the fact that he'd been right. And I had moments when I was looking at 
all of the sort of the, the structural politics that were behind why Trump was sticking around, why he kept winning primaries, why he kept like why this guy didn't just flame out spectacularly and just thinking, well, no, this can't pot like this, this can't possibly be the case. And it hits every one of those cognitive biases that, you know, it, and, and a lot of it, I think, is that sort of optimism and the desire just not to think that we were capable of doing something like electing a man like this. Just just a sheer it ultimately came down to the idea that no one wanted it to be so. And we wanted it to be to be otherwise so badly that we kind of ignored all the evidence that it was mounting. So, I mean, I guess this is this is just sort of me talking about the you know the the gray rhino that I'm that I have been obsessing over for the last year, which I guess leads into another question. It would, do you see how how much of that behavior leading up to and the behavior of the sort of political class leading up to the election of Donald Trump do you think fits the gray rhino rhino mold? And then I'd like to ask you about a, a but if you have favorite gray rhinos of your own that you use to really illustrate the point. Sure. And that's actually the, those, uh, those two questions are very, very similar, but um, the book came out in the U S originally in April, 2016. So a couple of months uh, before the, uh, before the primaries were settled and unanimously, you know, one of the first three questions was always is Trump a gray rhino. And I wrote a piece that summer saying, look, everyone says this can't happen, but you look at the polls and they're, they're neck and neck. So you really can't write this off. But I made a point that in some ways, Donald Trump is really just a symptom that even if he lost, uh, we would still be in a very difficult situation where you have so many people who feel that they're left behind by globalization uh, you have a political system that has not been working the way it should uh, for quite some time, and also some real holes in the process, whereby democracy is not really democracy because some states uh, get a disproportionately uh, large say in who gets to be president. Uh, you look at gerrymandering, you look at voter suppression, you look at all these ways in which American democracy is really not the bright and shining thing that most Americans like to idealize it as being. And so even if Trump had not been elected, we would have had these same problems. And in a certain way, him being elected helps us to focus on those pro problems much more directly. I think, because they, they just are so, so in your face now. I do think that there are a lot of Trump voters who still don't want to believe that you know, he doesn't really say it like it is. And I think there's some of them who, who know that he's lying, but they still come up with reasons to support him. I think there's a you know, smaller and smaller number of those. Um, so really, it's a, it's a question of a gray rhino behind a gray rhino behind a gray rhino is that how do you deal with this economic disruption and how do you deal with the political system? And what, what baffles me is that, uh, you know, people talk about this economic populism uh, and rage as being the reason for his election, but the, you know, the Republicans still push through this extremely regressive tax package that is, is not at all favorable to the very people who voted them in. Uh, which is just paradoxical, and there are all sorts of theories as to to why that is. But I'm very worried that this uh, this question of inequality, of economic disruption, uh, has come out there. People have been talking about it. You know, a few years ago, we had the the Thomas Piketty uh, bestseller of really raising the issue of inequality, focusing people's attention on it. 
But in terms of anything concrete happening to deal with that, we're actually going the opposite direction. You know, the 0.1% are getting a bigger and bigger and bigger share of the pie. And, you know, I think that, the, that Washington is not really taking into account enough that at some point that is going to come back and, and bite them because the, you know, the, the population who is out there buying things, you know, the less money they have to buy things, the worse the economy is going to do. And if they're out there buying things, well, you know, that's going to tr- trickle up to the top anyway, because they're the ones who, who control the, the companies that are providing those goods and services. Uh, so I think that if, um, if, you know, if we were to change our policies somewhat so that it, it was not so skewed uh, financially, I think you'd have more social stability, you'd have a more functional political system, and you'd still have the rich being very, very rich. They would getting a, get a proportionately smaller piece of a much bigger pie. And right now, people are getting a proportionately much bigger piece of a pie that's going to start shrinking as not everybody's included in the economy. And so that's really the big, the big gray rhino. It's, it's really a, an answer to both of your last questions. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And again, that's, those are it, it, it's such a good illustration of the way that these kind of cascading structural failures uh, or stru- not even necessarily failures. Some of them were genuine structural failures and some of them were just cultural shit. Some of them were structural shifts that chain that that undermined the expectations of certain voters for what their lives were going to look like. Um, and, and when, and when that happens, you've got a perfect recipe for political instability. And, and I, 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 t- I concur with you that the, the underlying structural phenomenon has not changed. Uh, and, and we're not, and as you know, I mean, Ellie and I talk about, you know, we are, we are both progressives. We talk about how to fix the, well, Ellie would define himself as a pragmatist, but he's a, he's a sort of, you know, centrist, center left pragmatist. Uh, we are both, you know, cent- we're both, uh, progressives, we're both Democrats, you know, the, the party part of, I think the reason that this continues is the party is the democratic party is kind of, at least in the public mind, and we can debate whether this is actually, whether this is true within our own councils, but at least in the public eye is, uh, is, is absolutely nowhere on these big structural issues, particularly the inequality one. Um, it's, it is not clear where our, we are, we're certainly not where the Republicans are, but in terms of providing a sort of a clear path forward, we are, we are, we are failing to do that. And, and I think that accounts for one of the reasons why the party has not been resilient in the face of a deeply unpopular president, a deeply unpopular party. Not to, that these are, you know, this is a, that's the partisan political lens on a big structural thing that you talked about. But I think that's a really good example of, of, of the small, of the small board uh, partisan political way that these big structural shifts have, have played out. Uh, what is the, let me ask you this question. It's related, but I, but I want to dig into it a little bit. What is the difference between a, a gray rhino that is, that is overlooked, that is not seen, uh, and, and one that is seen but not acknowledged? Am I talking about a black swan, the difference between a black swan and a gray rhino, or am I talking about two different types of gray rhinos? So again, the ones that just, that are sort of, that are overlooked and one that everyone can see coming, but they don't, they don't do anything about well, you know, I think it's it's really two different kinds. If if absolutely no one can see it, then that's a black swan. But with a lot of gray rhinos, you'll have a few really smart people out there, whether it's a, a whistleblower or a really good analyst who will go out there at the beginning, get an idea out there, and it takes a while for it to catch on. So I think that's a an example of your you know, largely overlooked gray rhino. 
But so many of them are widely seen and they're either not acknowledged or sometimes they are acknowledged and we, we do nothing about it. And this is, this is really part of the thinking I'm trying to get people to start doing is uh, an analysis of, of what stage your gray rhino is in. I've come up with a, with a five-stage framework from denial, not going to happen, to um, you know, in the middle you have diagnosing, really you know, figuring out what's happening. Uh, the last one is, of course, action. And the idea is to try to get from uh, denial to action as quickly as possible. You also have muddling when, when you know it's there, but you're not doing something. And then there's a panic stage, uh, which ideally is an urgency stage that you create before outright panic happens because when people are panicking, they're most likely to do something, but they're also most likely to make a really, really bad decision. Uh, so the first thing I do in thinking about a gray wine is ask, where, where is this situation in these stages? And often they'll show elements of both. And then who are the stakeholders? Who's affected by this? Who's creating the problem? And how, how are they looking at, at it? Some stage stakeholders might still be in denial, and some of them might actually be doing something. And in general, you have a small number of people who are, who are doing something, who are acknowledging it. And the question is, how do you make that infectious? You know, how do you get those ideas and those actions to spread? So looking at a gray rhino in those two frameworks helps you to strategize how to deal with the particular one that you're in. If you need a different strategy with different stakeholder groups or where, you know, how will you move it forward? And that's applicable whether in policy situations, in corporate situations, uh, and also even on, on your personal life. That's really helpful. Thank you. What is a, uh, what is a gray rhino you're keeping an eye on now? I think again, the inequality, 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 and, uh, I often look at gray rhinos, you know, as I said, in, in crashes when they're moving in, in groups and an inequality is tied into so many other issues. It, it goes to the, the political problems and the dysfunction of the system. It goes to problems in the economy, uh, particularly as the economy changes, uh, as we see more automation and artificial intelligence. So it's inequality and the the crash of gray rhinos all around that, both the ones that are causing it and the ones that result from inequality. Yeah. I mean, that seems to me the define that. And again, that is such a wonderful term. That seems to me the defining crash of our, of our time that the, the, the sort of thing that leads to an almost new epoch in, in the way that we, the way that we, at least in the West structure our lives and our expectations for our lives. Uh, so We're that's point. absolutely. Yeah. So this has been absolutely great. I mean, this, this is the, this is something that we could talk about for hours. Uh, and I, and I would love to be able to do that, but uh, we, we want to, uh, we want to keep this thing, uh, to a reasonable length, so we're going to have to leave it there uh, for now. Uh, we're going to dive now into our uh, our very quick lightning round, uh, which is a little bit lighter. Uh, so the first question of our lightning round uh, is: uh, Is there a book, a piece of music, a film, television program, uh, any piece of culture that you would uh, that you've enjoyed lately and would recommend to our listeners? It does not have to be. Uh, uh, in, it does not. Ha it does not have to be on the theme of gray rhinos, although it certainly can be. <laughs> uh, well, I'm actually going to cheat a little bit because I've been reading a lot of fiction by both Chinese and Korean authors, and it's so rich. I couldn't pick just one, but um, so one of them is called uh, 20 Fragments of a Ravenous Youth" by Xiao Lu Guo, and another book called "Human Acts." by Han Kang, who won a, uh, uh, which is a man Booker Prize for another 
book of hers, but I just, uh, when I was in Korea, this is the one that was recommended to me as even better than that one. And, uh, and it was so highly recommended. Terrific. Uh, tremendous. The good and, uh, and, and, and wonderfully titled both, especially 20, 20 fragments of a ravenous youth. Boy, that's a good one. Uh, excellent. Good. Uh, is there a, a food or a drink that you've had recently that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, uh, <laughs> I actually had a whole pecan pie in the last week because I decided that uh, yeah, after the holidays, I was going to do sugar-free February and I just had to have one more pecan pie where well, you toast the pecans ahead of time. Um, but part of the point of eating the whole thing in, in a little bit less than a week, I'm embarrassed to say, um, I asked my neighbors to help me, but they were, um, they didn't. And so after eating the whole thing, I'm like, I never want to see, see another pecan pie again. At least not until the end of February. I asked my neighbors to live with the car. Well, and that didn't, I mean, that, that, you know, you were left with no choice. You had to do it. I know we've all been, we've all been down that road. Who amongst <laughs> us has not had to eat an entire pie themselves on short notice because others declined to help? Uh, that's terrific. I love that. And, and I, can, I can personally test the value of the toasted, pecan, uh, the toasted pecan recommendations. Eat more pecan pie, taking ship listeners, and toast your pecans beforehand. In the Trump era, lots of people are interested in doing something, anything. Uh, what is one organization that you recommend supporting and why? Um, I would say, you know, any group that is working to fix the, the problems with the voting system, it, working on gerrymandering, if you've got one working in your state, that would be my first choice. But there are a couple of uh, national organizations, fairvote.org mm-hmm. uh, or the Fair Elections Project uh, at High Ground. You know, I think anything looking to fix some of the problems in, in our democracy, whether through ranked choice voting or redistricting or, or other plans to try to get the democracy back closer to what it was supposed to be. That is so good. And, and I, I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, you know, listeners, if you were looking for, if you are concerned about gray rhinos, uh, the process of voting, the functionality of American voting is, I mean, one of the biggest, grayest, most horned, ugliest things coming down at great speed I have seen in a while. Like this, this is one that this is something not, this is something where we should be legitimately reaching the panic stage. And there are good programs out there and people who are, who have foresight and, and the, the two, the ones that Michelle mentioned are really, are, are absolutely on point. But this is a, if, if this is not on your radar as a matter of priority listeners, it really, really needs to be. Uh, Michelle, uh, I, w- I want to thank you personally and, and thank you on behalf of both uh, both of us for uh, coming on board and uh, really having a terrific conversation. Uh, our last question is pretty simple. Where can people follow you? Very easy. TheGrayRhino.com. You can get there either with gray as an E or gray with an A. Um, Smart. <laughs> I got both of the URLs. Tremendous. Excellent. So please go to thegrayrhino.com and follow this. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really great. Thank you. I've had so much fun talking with you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, this is a great conversation. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at AdTakingShip, and that's ship with a P as in psilocybin, because we all need a dose of that after this week. With that, Frank, where are we headed this week? Well, we're, we're headed back to France again, yes, because they just they just can't sort themselves out. The place has really gone downhill since Napoleon died. Uh, because someone at uh, the Marine Aquarium in southern France uh, taught a killer whale how to mimic human speech, presumably so they could surrender to it, I guess. Uh, this particular orca can successfully imitate a few human words, which uh, I hope do not contain the word, which I hope do not include... Please come to the edge of this pool and lower your head. Yes, yes, a little lower. 
Uh, and so anyway, they've taught this whale to speak, uh, to mimic human sounds. And God damn it, people, this just this just feels like the beginning of the end. I mean, I, I understand the temptation to teach humans to or to teach animals to do human things. Uh, but we're in the middle of a full-fledged war with the sea itself, and I'm starting to wonder whose side some folks are really on. Uh, it seems the person who led this, the team behind this particular breakthrough is a Scottish professor, uh, and, and I should point out that the idea of the French and the Scots colluding on anything naval uh, should make the English worried as hell, but, but that's their problem. We'll leave it to them. In the meantime, this is not an opportunity that we at Taking Ship can pass up in, in the war on the sea. If this orca can, in fact, talk, it is our absolute duty to venture to the south of France and find out what it knows. Uh, so, allons-y, mes amis, à la mer, à la mer. Take care, everybody. <laughs>